1: Hello everyone, welcome back to the History Hit World Wars podcast. I'm your host James Rogers and we are dedicated to that turbulent period in history between 1914 and 1945. We're jumping back into the First World War and King George V is the focus of this episode. He played a critical role in Britain's war effort during the First World War, from the outbreak in 1914 all the way to the King's pilgrimage in May 1922 when he went and visited cemeteries and memorials being constructed the Imperial War Graves Commission. To talk us through this, we have the fantastic author, broadcaster and war historian, Alexandra Churchill, who has combed through the Royal Archives to try and fully understand George's role in the war, including his frequent disputes with David Lloyd George, as she discusses with Dan, so bitter was their relationship that Lloyd George at one point attempted to place control of the British army under French commanders. This is an amazing episode, an amazing history. And to make sure you don't miss future episodes, then please take a second to subscribe and share with everyone and anyone you know who is passionate about history. But now, here's Alexandra Churchill on King George V in World War One.
2: Churchill, thank
3: you very much for coming back on this podcast. You're very welcome. <laughs> thank you for having me, actually.
2: Well, listen, George V, George V, he gets sandwiched between a lot more... Uh, people write a lot more books about his dad and his son, don't they? I mean, everyone... Edward VII, very amusing. Edwardian period, a whole period named after him. And Edward VIII, a bit of a shambles. George V, what's, you know, what's going on with him? And, and why did you decide to write this biography of him?
3: So I'd done, like, books on a different experience of the First World War. So I'd done Etonians, I'd done uh, football in the First World War, I'd done a couple of memorial books which were deeply distressing, because um, they were all about people who died in Somme and Passchendaele. And I was it was back in 2015, and I was thinking, what would be the, the best, most unique war experience you could write about? And I said to my publisher, I was like, oh, the king. And she went, yes! And I went, they're going to let me do that. Um, so she convinced me to write in and request, which is what you have to do if you want to use the Royal Archives. And then about four or five months later, I got a letter with an impressive stamp on it from a castle saying, yes, you can do it.
2: OK. <laughs> uh, that's, does that mean you have to be nice about him, though?
3: No, I've never ever been told that. What well, All they ever ask you is that you have to um, use the material in context. So you can't, like, take... One paragraph and cut it in half to make an argument. They just ask you to be fair, which is, I think is really cool. No, there was there were no there was no sort of what are you going to say about him or what do you think because I couldn't have answered those questions because I didn't know enough about him. But um, they no, they were brilliant from start to finish. Actually, really open, really helpful. Uh, the way it works, you get a buddy from them because the system is so hard to work around and the cataloging is, is crazy. You ask for the the themes of what you want and the dates of what you want, and one of them has to go and find it all for you. So you get. This buddy who effectively works as hard as you do on your project which is also funded by the queen which is rather nice of her
2: <laughs> very thank you thank you your majesty yeah. Right, t- tell me about george the fifth i mean do you, do you look at his whole life or, or is this just his wartime experience
3: no, I very much so. i had looked at the biographies of him that were his whole life and you never get more than 40 to 50 pages on the war. And I'm sitting there as a war historian looking at it and thinking, oh, there must be so much more to say. They're really, really skimming because they have so much else to cover. So I just wanted to do, originally it was 1914 to 18. And then I quickly realised that his war doesn't end on the 11th of November, 18 at all. So it sort of goes through and it ends uh, in the early 20s when he does his own private pilgrimage to the battlefield.
2: What was the role of George V in the First World War? Was he a figurehead? Was he just looking looking nice and giving out medals and saying polite things? Was he an important figure in the strategy, in the execution of of Britain's war effort?
3: So constitutionally, he has zero power. The the constitutional monarchy that we have kind of enables a monarch to advise, to warn, and to to be involved in, in knowing everything that's going on. But They can't tell the government what to do. So his role, when it started, yes, he was a figurehead and he's the... the, titled head of the army and the navy but that doesn't actually mean that there's a job description for what to do while you're at war so his role is whatever he chooses to make it and really that's true of of a british sovereign all the way through whatever they they choose and the extent of what they choose to be involved in is down to them Um, and he was so industrious that he wanted to be involved in absolutely everything but you see his role evolving from very haphazard and disorganized early in the war and then as the country gets more organized for war and for waging war, then so does George V and and his household have him much more structured and much more focused. But in truth, he was interested in whatever he wanted to be interested in. I mean, at at one end, there's the whole um, debate about whether he should have supported offering asylum to his cousin, the Tsar. And at the other end, he's writing letters to an old man who sweeps the tram stop outside East Croydon Station, because he's heard that he's got 14 relatives in the in the war effort. So really, his role is whatever he chooses to make it. And he chose to be absolutely relentless for nearly five years.
2: What were his views on the outbreak? I mean, did he, when, when Britain was sliding into war, did he lobby the government? Did he try and talk to his cousins in Russia and Germany? Did he, did he play a part in that crazy breakdown of, of European relations that led to the First World War?
3: I mean, he does in that obviously the first thing that the governments want to do is utilise the relationship between the Tsar, the Kaiser and the King and anything that they can get them to send to each other or any way that they can get them involved in a dialogue. They're hoping will keep everybody out of war and he's he does that i mean he's getting dragged out of bed at one in the morning and he's got Asquith sitting in his study while he's wearing a dressing gown asking him to send him to a telegram to nicholas um so yes he was involved I think he very much didn't want war um but when it came i think everybody i've I've seen an article in The Telegraph back in 2014, and it was based on a letter that someone had unearthed that was written loads of years later, and it kind of said that he wanted war, and that's so not true. He absolutely didn't want war. But that said, when it became inevitable at the beginning of August, he was absolutely determined that Britain was going to be on the winning side.
2: And what does he, so what does he see his main job as? What does he spend his days doing? I mean, he mentions a bit of the vast array, but what's his... What does he start off by actually really doing during the
3: war? So he starts off with really obvious things. So he goes and sees all the troops before they depart. Um, and that kind of evolves into him wanting to visit every division before they leave for the front. He does naval visits as well. He does um, hospital visits, um, those he finds particularly harrowing. And Queen Mary accompanies him on a lot of those. Um, He does labour and industrial visits. Um, Firstly in 1915 when we're going through huge shortages and things like munitions and shells and there's a bit of a labour crisis going on. And again in 17, when it's more um, industrial unrest in terms of strikes and things like that, the government asks him to go out again. But then really anywhere where there's war work going on, any town he can go and encourage, he's very much a figurehead, like you said. So when he leaves the palace, he has to look positive. He has to look like he's convinced we're going to win and it's his job to G everybody else up and convince them that if Britain just carries on working as hard as they possibly can, then we are going to win the war, which for someone who is a constant worrier and uh, suffers from anxiety is not an easy job.
2: Who decides what he does? Does he have a lot of freedom or does he just have to do what the politicians tell him?
3: No, so um, it's very rare that he does what what the politicians tell him. If they ask him to do something um, and he'll willingly do it, like that, that tour I mentioned, but there's a team at the palace. So there's the king and then just as important as the king really is his principal private secretary, who is effectively the gatekeeper. So you can't get to the king without going through him, which is great because he's he's also like a bullshit filter as well. So anything that doesn't need to be on the king's desk, he can keep it away. There's then an assistant private secretary and his name is Clive Wigram he's very forward-thinking and he's key really in the, the developing of modern PR during World War One, with the advent of moving pictures and getting the King out there and visible because of the level of press coverage he's really good for that and then there's other members of the household as well like the Keeper of the Privy Purse who's basically in charge of his money Fritz Ponsonby again he's much more of a traditionalist but again he's drive, he drives the King very much to get out to the front and to visit soldiers um, which the King does annually and then a lot more frequently in 1980 as well so but it's, it's kind of like a team and also Queen Mary as well because uh, a lot of the time she refuses to be left behind and she wants to go as well and that includes on trips to the front as well so there's a whole team at Buckingham Palace sort of evolving this role together if you like and quite obviously uh, quite often sorry arguing and bitching amongst themselves about where he should be and what he what he should be doing there's some great letters from uh, Clive Wigram when uh, the armistice happens about what the king should be doing and everybody is scrabbing trying to drag him in different directions and some people are saying you should get right out to the soldiers and other people saying no you need to be here at home and visible at the palace and uh, so it's not a smooth path by any means but there's quite a few people involved in in doing his schedule but ultimately if he didn't want to do anything he wouldn't do it.
2: As the war goes on and the empires the great empires start to crumble the Russian empire in 1917 does The king, does it all become a bit more urgent? Does the king start to actually fear social revolution? Does that appear in any of these letters? Does the fear of contagion start to worry the British establishment?
3: Definitely, in 1917, after the uh, abdication of the Tsar, there's, there's like a and if we look back on it now, it's like a, a little ripple of um, republicanism going through Britain. But it did involve mass rallies at the Royal Albert Hall and things like that. And none of it, um, none of the big public events, were really anti-king. But they they were congratulating the Russians on having assured their freedom. And from then on, the king is absolutely terrified by the thought. Really, at the end of the year, terrified by the word Bolshevism and anything that constitutes any kind of opposition or red um, opposition to the establishment is Bolshevism. He's, he's not, he just labels it as that and he's absolutely terrified.
2: Does he, Does he? as a result, is he quite unwilling to take, even if they could have smuggled the Russian royal family out of Russia, which is pretty much logistically impossible, does, does, is he keen to do that or is he actually like, God, the last thing I want is those guys over here attracting more opposition to my regime.
3: That's exactly it, but not in quite such a like uh, mercenary way. But um, right from the beginning, the king was opposed to the Tsar coming to England. But it's it's quite a multifaceted debate. So first of all, you have the fact that, yes, obviously, like you said, that the last thing he needs is more unrest in Britain because suddenly the Tsar is there. And I looked back at the last two visits from the Tsar to this country or um, meetings that he had with Edward VII, and there was an outpouring of, of real vitriol and disgust that British monarch would be seen with an autocrat, um, and especially coming from the likes of Keir Hardy and Labour representatives, they were absolutely disgusted that he even met with the Tsar at Cowes. So, what would have happened had he moved to Britain? I cannot say, but it wouldn't have been good. From another point of view, from a, from the war effort point of view, we cannot cannot, cannot lose Russia as an ally. She's um she's occupying 50 German divisions on the Eastern Front for a start or in the region of. Also, she's a very pliable ally. We've given her a ton of money, a ton of munitions, and um, they work really well in in kind of doing what the British asked them to do to an extent. And how are they going to react if you then suddenly got the, the man that they deposed living... A stone's throw from London. And you're going to, are you going to want to listen to the British anymore? Are you going to consider that perhaps he's got the ear of people over here? And then you've got the added problem of inevitably, wherever he ends up, there's going to be a court in exile. So you're going to end up with other prolific Russians who you wouldn't be able to turn away if their czar is there. So there's a whole load of reasons that the king sees and uh, alarm bells ringing when, uh, when the offer is made. He asked the government not to make the offer and he's effectively told sit down and shut up by Arthur Balfour. He's told sort of sort your government have made this decision and you're going to have to live with it. It's only then after about 10 days when the Russian government do absolutely nothing to take up the British on their offer of asylum. So that for me is the one realistic opportunity they might have had to get Nicholas out of the country. But bear in mind he was refusing to leave his children as well because they all had measles so whether or not they would have had to drag him kicking and screaming if they were going to get him out but nothing happens when they make the initial offer and it's not until after days of elapsed when the king thinks do you know what i think we should write again and there's another letter from the palace to the government saying i really do think this is a bad idea and it's not till the 6th of april that balfour writes sort of a key letter to lloyd george that says i really think he's right and we need to rethink this and perhaps start looking at other places like the south of france or, or somewhere else to put him
2: Dump them in the south of France. That's where you put redundant rich people. I, I, I
3: know. <laughs> well, no, then the Spanish actually offered... I've got evidence that uh, the King of Spain had offered, at least when they thought that Nicholas had been murdered, but that they didn't know that the Empress and the children were, were also dead. They're actively... I mean, there's orders saying the King desires that if the Royal Navy are asked for help in getting them out, then you have to help. And that Alfonso the Thirteenth of Spain had said that he would accommodate them in Spain. So it's not like... because. He didn't offer asylum. He just cut them dead and didn't care. There's constant references to his trying still to make sure he was safe, but just not on British soil.
2: Crikey! And and for the king, therefore, the experience, the knowledge they'd been executed must have been uh, pretty nasty for the old Saxi Coburg. <laughs>
0: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: Actually, speaking of
3: sykes Coburg family, talk to me about the big name change. How does that go down? The name change is quite funny because it starts off with uh, him forcing, well, not forcing, but politely requesting that all of his relatives change their names and drop their German titles, which if a king asks you to do, you can't really say no, but Queen Mary's brothers are quite feisty about it, so they try, and, they try various things like stalling and not picking a decent name. And, and in the end, there's a fantastic letter from Stamfordham, who I mentioned was the gatekeeper, um, to one of Queen Mary's brothers, that and they've, they've basically told him that he's gonna, his title's going to be Cambridge. And... Uh, uh, <laughs> he's saying well I don't want it, I don't like it and Stanford's attitude is you were given time you were given plenty of opportunity to suggest your own name, you only suggested names that would be appropriate for the king and then you wouldn't give us another name so now the king says this is your name and he's sure you'll come to like it in the end but then obviously it doesn't look good if he doesn't change his own name as well which really was the point of the whole thing in the first place but I got into the whole um, the whole process and all of the other silly suggestions that came up and all of the names that might have been for the current dynasty on the British throne so it could have been the house of Stuart again but spelt with an EW. Really? They thought about going back to Stuart, did they? That's what That was the favourite of the king and queen, to go back to Stuart. Um, People were suggesting, someone suggested Plantagenet Tudor Stuart, to which I think the king's response was two words long and ended with off. Tudor he wasn't keen on because of uh, Bloody Mary and because of Henry VIII cutting his wife's heads off. Uh, Stuart, he was actually told in the end what killed that one was that out of the Stuarts, one of them had to run from the country and another one had his head cut off and it doesn't look good. Actually, Lord Rosebery's brought on as an advisor in this as well and he thinks Fitzroy and so they're saying that that's been used by royal families before but then obviously the key thing about Fitz anything is it signifies a bastard so it doesn't look good if you suddenly rename your royal family with a fits before anything. It was brilliant I was researching this and we came up with a when they actually finally pick Windsor and they have to go and research name back to the 11th century the original title holder had so many bastard children that he had a child called Fitz Other which I thought was great but yeah so in the end someone comes up with Windsor and uh, then there's a little bit of about whether the windsor Clive family might be offended. But by that point, the king has decided that he loves it and he's having that one and he's not not listening to any protests. So that's what they become.
2: Brilliant. Now, Alexandra, talk to me, because Earl Haig did have, I think his wife was a lady-in-waiting or something. He had good connections at court. Did you pick up anything in the archives about this argument that was, by the end of the war, raging between the politicians, particularly David Lloyd George, and and the generals like Douglas Haig on the western front and, and the king's role within that or did he not was there nothing there no
3: there was so much there and half the book is that stuff. So first of all Haig's relationship with Edward VII's household was very good because he married one of her ladies-in-waiting. His relationship with George V, before the war they know each other, they're not friends but they know each other, they quite like each other, they'll talk if they meet but then obviously after he becomes commander-in-chief of the BF in 1916 then they have a lot more contact and the King really liked him, he really respects him and just like Robertson as well so basically what happens is that the King loves and respects all the people that Lloyd George hates, which means that it puts them in conflict with each other constantly after 1917 when he becomes Prime Minister. And we've had this chat before, and I've told you that he was very sneaky in some of the stuff he did. He went behind the King, Hagues and Robertson. So that Robertson is like the... uh, the chief of the army here he's the government's chief military advisor basically and uh, goes behind all of their backs and tries to put the british army under french command which really doesn't go down very well and he ends up with egg on his face with that one there's also as well the connotations of Passchendaele, for which for about a hundred years now the the army hier- hierarchy have taken some real stick about the continuation of Passchendaele and how bloody it got and how wasteful it was but um It came up in a couple of books last year for the Centenary of Passchendaele about Lloyd George's uh, involvement in that as well. And, And I've expanded on that a bit in that to say that actually what he did before the battle started was give the government a get out, which was that if ever the battle wasn't going the way they wanted it to or they thought it was too wasteful, then they could stop it. He was told you can start the battle, but if you don't continue it in a satisfactory way, then the government will stop it. And there's no evidence to suggest that they ever sat down in amongst all that carnage and thought about doing that. But really, the Lloyd George versus the King thing comes to a head in 1918. I guess by that point, Lloyd George is comfortable in his position. And uh, he can really get things done. He's recovered from that little setback trying to put the uh, British army under the French. And uh, he gets rid of Robertson. He He I think he really, he would have got rid of Hague if he could at all as well. I found some, two brilliant accounts from uh, the king's secretary, Stamfordham where uh, the king was present for one and the other one was Stamfordham on behalf of the king detailing these all out rants that Lloyd George had about the generals and I I think he says things like uh, I never even thought Haig was a a decent man let alone a decent general and I think uh, Stamfordham challenges him and says well do you think you could find any better generals to try and run this war and um, Lloyd George says well I think I probably could but what comes out is his absolute Rage and hatred for the military hierarchy and and what's going on in France. And then, I mean, I I personally think that Lloyd George could have want uh, could have lost us the war in the spring of eighteen. He'd pursued a policy of restricting manpower going out to the army for months up until the German spring offensives. And if the Germans had stuck to their original plan, I think we could have been quite doomed. But what they did was deviate from their plan and outrun their own supply lines, which fortunately for us meant that their huge attempt to win the war in 1918 didn't come off.
2: Alex Churchill... You have been drinking the Kool-Aid, man. You are like... i Miss...
3: no, I know he's your great granddad, but you I've said like this George to you before. You are like
2: George You've turned into a fangirl, like all oh, biographers. I mean, honestly. No. no. That's really that's really interesting. I'm, I'm, that's fascinating to hear that. say. So what do you think George V did make of Lloyd George personally? Do you think he thought he was a pain in the arse?
3: I think so, and, and I completely agree with this sentiment... During the war, we absolutely needed Lloyd George because of his vitality, because of his determination. And when he takes over at the Ministry of Munitions, you cannot deny that he absolutely aced that in bringing that into being. He could do so much that was good and he was so good, but he could also be a complete rat bag. And the King says the same about Churchill. He likes Churchill and he thinks he's very able, but he doesn't trust him as far as he can throw him, he, he's not very good at dealing with uh, the politicians, wily politicians who obviously have self-interest factored into there. As, as a king, he can sit there and be very selfless and just turn up for any event and contribute to anything and, and with no he has the, the British Constitution enables him to distance himself from the dirty side of politics, whereas obviously they can't because it's their job, and he's very wary of him. he is. And they, they do have some good rows. I think one of them is about the khaki election. And uh, actually, and the king says to Lloyd George, if you have this election now, you will be out of power sooner rather than later and you will never be back. And he was right. Um, so he respects he, he respects his abilities. He thinks that he does some really good things. He has nothing but good things to say about him in, in 1915 when he's um, when he's at the Ministry of Munitions. And he thinks that he's just the man to take over. But as the war goes on, he sees rather too much of the other side of Lloyd George and uh, it's a strained relationship at at times but uh, Lloyd George is just as bad on the other side he does a lot of uh, petty things as well just to dig at the palace so they're both as bad as one another really in a personal sense
2: didn't Lloyd George force the King to give up
3: boozing during the war as well? Was that yes? He did. He did. He did. <laughs> so he manufactured what he what he kind of implied was that it was going to be a huge push towards prohibition in general. And then he sort of the King said, "Well, if if you go down that road, I'll be happy to oblige." And Lloyd George goes and has the the letter published, which basically implies that the King's already done it, and everyone else should follow, and no one does. So then from then on, the King is very wary wary about agreeing to things um, that Lloyd George comes up with. So. Yeah, he, he, he could be a, a complete, you, I know you're related to him, but you have to admit he could be a complete ratbag at times.
2: Mate, talk to my great-great-grandmother about that. She'll uh, <laughs> she'll, be the first, she'll be the first to tell you that. Yeah. Um, that is, this book sounds, uh, sounds really, really fascinating. I mean, what, what is the, what's the legacy of, of George V? I mean, did he leave the monarchy strengthened? Did he leave it weakened? Did he help the war? Or, or is he actually a, a peripheral figure?
3: No, I think he very much, the reason that the monarchy exists in the way that it does today is because of George V. He'd kind of started making inroads into the blueprint for the monarchy, like the way we see them operate today before the war, but it was wholly accelerated during the war. And the the standard he lays down that's later taken up by George VI and has been carried on for decades now by his granddaughter, Elizabeth II as well, is that... There's no side, there's no snobbery, you get out there, you get your hands dirty, you meet people, you engage with people, you're visible and all of that starts in World War One. So it's odd, like you said, he's sandwiched between two other monarchs that people write about a lot more. But really, he's the reason, I mean, you could argue, some people might argue he's the reason the monarchy does still exist because what might have happened? I mean, you know he was never meant to be king and he had a rather wet, sappy older brother who unfortunately died in 1892. And then he um, came into the direct line of succession. What had happened if uh, poor Eddie had been on the throne during World War I? It might have been very, very different.
2: Well, there you go. I, I uh, like so many Charles I, Henry Eighth. George VI. There's so many of our kings who uh, whose experiences were shaped by being the younger son and suddenly thrust into the succession. Exactly. Thank you very much, Alex Churchill. What is the name of your book? Uh,
3: it's In the Eye of the Storm, George V and the Great War.
2: You're an absolute legend. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Good luck with the book. No
3: problem. Thank you for having me.
2: Everyone, get, follow Alexandra Churchill. She's one of the best military historians out there on, uh, on Twitter and, uh, and elsewhere. you. Thank you